Titus 2. Have a seat. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. Just a few verses. We'll pick up with uh, where we left off. Titus 2. We read verses 1 through 4, so we will read verses 5 through 10. If you're taking notes, 5 through 10. Starting with verse 5, uh, or sorry, verse uh, 4. So actually, we only covered verses 1 through 3, I forgot. Uh, starting with verse 4. That they, these are um, the older women. Uh, it doesn't have to be older, like very older, but just older than the young women. So it could be middle age, it could be all the way up in years. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Let's pray again. Father, may your spirit rest upon this time. Lord, bring us into your presence. Remove all the distractions of this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little girl named Martha was talking to her teacher about whales. And the teacher said that it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though it's a large mammal, it has a very small throat, narrow, narrow throat. Martha stated again that Jonah was indeed swallowed by a whale. Irritated, the teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It was physically impossible. The little girl said, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. The teacher said, what if Jonah went to hell? And Martha replied, then you ask him. <laughs> you never know what kids will say, right? Very witty they are. Very, it just came right out of the mouth of babes there. By the way, if you're going to refute the word of God, God may rebuke you with anything, right? But what are we teaching and who and what are we listening to and what are we learning and what are we modeling? We're all in this teacher-student relationship in life, aren't we? We're all learning at the same time we're teaching. The older you get, the more you realize, God, how in the world did you put me in responsibility for other human beings? whether they be adults or kids or, you know, whatever you do. So we're all in this nonstop teacher-student intersection of life. But as we're learning, as we're teaching, Jesus is watching us, isn't he? 
He's watching to see how we're doing, how we're listening, how we're learning, what we're actually believing. Our words and our life are always speaking, aren't they? People are, people are watching us whether we know it or not. People are listening to what we say. Does our lifestyle match up with our words? People are seeing. In our previous study, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and that was primarily directed to the men, the older men it starts out with back in verse 2. And then it moved into the older women, that God wanted the older men and the older women to be these primary examples. Why? Well, God has always had what we, have, we see in the scriptures, patriarchs, right? Those that have gone before, those that have life experience. But it's not just life experience, it's spiritual life experience that God is looking for. And those of you that have years and you've walked with the Lord for some length of time, God wants you to be instrumental in the lives of others. But even all, all the way you go up, middle-aged, middle spiritually aged, right? Depending on where your maturity level is. God wants to use us uh, in the lives of others. So you have proactive discipleship, but you also just kind of have that iron sharpening iron, right? Just kind of daily kind of rubbing into one another, hopefully in a good way, right? Where you're rubbing off uh, the character of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the gospel should be coming through your life and my life. So remember that Paul you know, uh, tells Titus, you've got to set everything in order. Things are not in order. Uh, people are not being properly discipled. People are not, they're hearing false doctrine, but if they're not hearing false doctrine, they're just kinda, it's, there can be things that are just kind of lackadaisical. No one's really kind of reinforcing the tenets of the faith. And it's great to see. I was thinking as I was getting ready to come in here, uh, I used to not. There was a time where I didn't go to church on a Wednesday night. Some of you might remember when you didn't go to church on a Wednesday night. My wife and I got saved in 1995. Calvary, Fort Lauderdale, you guys know that. And then we moved to Charlotte in 1997 up to North Carolina. And I remember we started going on Wednesday nights, right? It was like a big deal to us. Like, we didn't even have kids or anything. Like, we usually rollerblade after work. <laughs> These are the thoughts we had. I mean, I'm really not kidding. This is exactly the thoughts we had. But like, after work, we rollerblading was big in the 90s. You all may not, may not remember this, but uh, rollerblading was a thing back in the 90s. So we'd get off work. We were in shape. We looked like the Michelob Light commercials without the Michelob Light because, uh, you know, we didn't, we, you know, at that time we had given all that stuff up and we'd gotten saved. Uh, but, you know, after work it was like light out, put the rollerblades on, go hit, and then, and then like the Holy Spirit says, why don't you go to church? Well, I already read the Bible. Why would I need to go on a Wednesday night? You know, all these things come into your mind and it's the Lord's like, because you don't know near as much as you think you do. You're not near as mature as you think you are. You need more fellowship than you think you need. People need you. Another reason you come is just to serve, right? So all of these things, the Lord, uh, I was just thinking about them earlier tonight. But uh, So Paul told Titus, all of these things, we, we have to invest in the body. And, and, and it's not that people know these things. So let's take a look at what uh, is given to these older women in the faith to hand off to these younger women of the faith. And again, this can happen in an actual teaching session, like a Bible study, or it can happen just texting one another or talking on the phone. People don't do that as much anymore, but 
Uh, all these formats, again, or just over coffee, there's a lot of different ways that these things can be transferred for those that have walked them out. And you can't transfer what you don't live out, right? You can't say, you know, I don't do any of this stuff, but you probably should. I don't live this way, but I, I'm pretty sure that's what the Bible says. That has to be lived out to be handed out. So we'll start off, you're taking you note, know, just three things. The first is a word to young women. Again, this is Paul to Titus, and then this is how it works. God gives it to Paul. you got God here. Gives it to Paul. Paul gives it to Titus, and then Titus is supposed to give it to the whole church. That's how it stair steps down. Uh, God, then Paul, then Titus, then to the church. But then, even from the church, it then here's to the women, the older women specifically, uh, those that are just up in age and, and have had some years of raising a family, being a, being a wife. And the first thing he says in verse uh, 4, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Now, the word admonish, it means to teach or disciple. It also means, how about this one, to restore one's senses. It, all this, it means it simultaneously. So it means all these things, to teach or disciple, but also means to restore one's senses. So in other words, perspective can be lost. You ever had the right perspective and then lost the perspective? Of course we have. Things we know are like, oh, I, want I know this. How did I forget that? We talked about this Sunday. Verse 4 goes back to verse 3. Again, look at verse 3 at the top of verse 3. The older women likewise. It's significant that Paul, that Paul, Paul's a church planter. He's a missionary. He's a pastor of pastors. Paul wears a lot of hats. Would you agree? He also is a theologian and a writer. But Paul is a church planter and a pastor of pastors, and that's what's uh, most represented in this epistle because what? He is writing to Titus as a pastor, and he's Titus' pastor. And in writing to Titus, again, both Paul and Titus are both pastors, he instructs Titus to have the older women teaching the younger women. You say, well, I've, I get that, but it's significant. Let's look at why. Now, this is not speaking of larger church gatherings. Tonight, I am up here teaching. My wife is a woman. A lot of you ladies are here. You're sitting, it's a mixed Bible study. We have men, we have women, we have different ages. It's a mixed study. Sunday, it's a mixed study, just more people. But it's a mixed study. So he's not talking to Titus about larger group gatherings where pastors and elders teach everybody the same way Jesus would teach multitudes of any size, right? But that the mature godly women should lead studies and discipleship of younger women. In other words, you should never have a dude doing a bunch of Bible studies with a bunch of ladies, is what Paul is saying to Titus. Does that make sense? So if you ever visit a church and you say, our assistant pastor leads all the ladies' studies, it's like him and 25 women, not a good thing. He's given specific instructions that the women should be led in the smaller discipleship realm by other women. But not the larger context, because if you don't have this setting, then there's no pastoral teaching. So you'd, it's not either or, it's both and. Make sense? So he's saying that, remember, the first part of chapter 1 is that the pastors be teaching sound doctrine. 
The past, it's all directed to the pastors and elders in chapter 1. The chapter 1 is like your congregational setting. Now Paul has moved into small groups, if you will. Does that make sense? So he's moving it out into small groups. Say now, as the ladies get together, it should not be one of the men hanging out with the ladies teaching the study. It should be the older women teaching that study or transferring that. Or having the, it's more than just the study. It's the relationships. Like, uh, you know, it's five ladies and this guy likes to have coffee with them all. Well, he's just discipling all that. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The relationships, ladies to ladies, transferring that knowledge, instilling these character and qualities, character traits and qualities that come from the Lord. Now, let's go on. So what is it There's uh, these ladies are supposed to transfer or teach or admonish to these younger women? Love their husbands, love their children. Paul starts, number one, with, if you're taking notes, well, number one, he starts with love. Number one, he starts with love. And what we see here is something that's very important to understand. Love has to be taught. Did you know that? You have to teach your kids to love. You because love has to be discipled. Love's not a feeling, is it? You don't have to teach someone to have feelings. They'll have feelings. You'll never have to teach people to have feelings. They'll automatically have feelings. Butterflies. Oh, I feel attracted. But love is something that takes work, takes intentionality, takes action, takes effort, takes sacrifice. So the older women have to say, no, no, no. You, you think that's odd that you had to spend all that time cooking the meal? That's not odd. That's a life of love, right? You ever see someone say, this was baked with love, right? It's great for Pinterest ads and stuff like that. But this was baked with love. So uh, the older women are saying, no, no, these things, love is going to take effort. It's not going to come easy. Well, the dating came easy. We just held hands. We ran through Springfields and all this, and it was all, you know. But then the children came and all this other stuff and, like, Diapers were hanging in the bathroom and all this, uh, these things start to add up. And you're like, this is not as lovely <laughs> as it once was. Jesus is our example of getting down and getting dirty, right? Washing feet. We're going to look more at this Sunday with Hebrews chapter 4 and the humility of Jesus. But Jesus taught the disciples that love will take effort. We have to go to towns we don't want to go to. We have to stay longer than we want to. We have to stay outside when the sun is hot. Love is going to take effort. So the older women have to remind the younger women. Then they say, this is just too hard, too difficult. Love's going to take effort. Number two, so we're not like diving deep in these. We just want to understand what Paul is saying. Number two, the children are mentioned here. Love your children. Again, love takes effort. But number two, if God has given you a family, this is your priority. A lot of times people are looking for a priority in life. If you have a marriage, you have a spouse, you have a priority. Now, that priority, it doesn't take the place of Jesus, but the priority in your life as it relates to people, your husband, then your children. And by the way, it is your husband first, then your children, because someday the kids won't be there. And if you put your spouse first, 
the kids won't suffer. They'll actually see a God-honoring marriage. They'll do better in that respect. And no one that loves their husband uh, or husbands love their wives and Christ love the church, wives love their husbands. If that is happening reciprocally on both ends, the kids benefit tremendously anyway. Not going to be neglected. But this is the priority. The world says things like, you, you've, heard the, you've heard this cliche. It's been, it's been used in movies, been used by uh, you know, lots of different um, non-Christian entities. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, right? Uh, but the world likes to say things like that, but then it inserts microwave forms of motherhood, right? Because rocking the cradle takes time, doesn't it? But then, it, well, you don't have time, so you just outsource it. You can't have it both ways, can you? Now, furthermore, for us as believers, we're not actually looking to rule the world, are we? I mean, that cliche doesn't really apply to us as much. We're not looking to rule the world. Uh, we shouldn't be looking for our kids to rule the world. But today, it's not so much that people are looking for their kids to rule the world. They have a success mindset. They want everyone to know, my kid is more amazing than your kid. Right? And so we will give all of our time and energy to make sure everyone knows how accomplished and how amazing our kid is, even if they're not that amazing in some things. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But anyway. But rather, the, the, goal of, the goal of the parents, in this case, again, he's, the younger women being admonished by the older women, the goal of the moms is not to have their kids rule the world or have some great success, but to have their kids resist the world. How about that? You're teaching your kids to resist the world, not rule the world. Jesus already rules the world, amen? And he didn't ask us to take his place. But he has asked us to resist the world. And moms, you would be instilling your kid to walk with the one who rules the world. You don't need to rule the world, but you need to walk with Jesus who already rules. Amen? Put the, made the world his footstool. Moms have lots of responsibilities. But given that they spend typically, not always the case, but typically... Most moms spend more minutes and hours in the week with the kids in most scenarios, not all. Uh, and if they're walking with Christ, they have this great opportunity to have a great, great influence. Timothy's mom right, and his grandmother are both cited as having tremendous influence in his life. Uh, now, I want to address the fact that in our society today, you know I have a great heart. I'm, I'm, our leaders do. We have a great heart for single parents. Not just single moms. There's some single dads out there too, but single parents in general, we have a great heart for, and it is a growing huge, huge amount of people in the United States. 10, 20 years from now, if this continues, the number of single parents will be just a, just a massive number. And for moms that are doing this, and sometimes it's grandmothers that are doing this, it's a lot to take on, isn't it, by yourself? You may have to have a job. Some people have to say, we, you know, or you may be here and you're a mom and you, you're married even, and you have to have a second job. You say, we can't even pay the bills if I don't have a job, right? Just, it's just reality. We, both of us have to work. We have to be dual income. Now, God could change that at some point, but there is, there is the fact that a lot of times 
in the family. Both people do need to work. But even if that's the case, you still, in your heart, you prioritize Jesus, then your spouse, then your kids. Amen? Say, Lord, I'm going to still make that the centerpiece of my prayer life, of, of how I orient my time. It's great. If you want to have hobbies, this is the older woman talking to the younger woman. But I have a hobby. I have interest. I, yes, those things, there's nothing wrong with a hobby. There's nothing wrong with interest. But they can't crowd out what's most important. That's what they would be teaching them. Your husband, then your kids. Your husband, your kids. And if the other things are crowding that out, then something is out of whack. The priority's out. Your life's work starts with your family. Not putting career first. Not putting friends first. Not putting fitness first. Anything. And by the way, this applies to men too. It's just outlined in other epistles here. Paul's speaking mostly to the young women in this respect, but uh, you know this applies to both men and women. This isn't just to the young women. But he's speaking to the women here, but we understand that this applies to men and women because that's why I'm told to teach the whole counsel of God. So we actually have some other passages that relay this same message. Now again, the priority of the family is not first and foremost over our relationship with Christ. I can't count how many people over the years being a pastor or being a believer, people said, well, we would do this, we do that, but our family. I'm like, you, you know, you need to be careful because you are married first unto Jesus. Your love for him is supposed to make it look like hate for all of your other family members. You won't be able to get to heaven and say, well, I would have served, I would have done this, I would have done that, but those kids and spouse you gave me kept getting in the way. Jesus said, if you'd have put me first, they would have never have been a roadblock to service. They would have been serving with you. Not a roadblock to service. They would have been matured and discipled along with you. But instead, he said, well, well, we'll get involved in church when we're about 50, after everybody's grown and out of the house and all this other stuff. No, no, no. Lord first, spouse second, kids third. Let's look at the next one. To be discreet. Boy, that's needed these days, isn't it? You ever looked at social media? Discreet. It means temperate, self-controlled, resisting impulses. That's what it means. Resisting impulses. A lot of times we just want to respond in a certain way. This is how things like gossip can start, saying too much not covering people. Love covers a multitude of sin. Discreet, say, I'm going to resist the impulse to react and say something I shouldn't say that will actually cause damage or things of that nature. Then look at the next one, number four, if you're taking notes, number four, chaste. What does that mean? Well, it's certainly something that uh, is less and less foreign, to, uh, or more and more foreign to our society today. Chase means pure, modest, sacred. How about that? God looks at modesty and purity as a sacred thing. I know that there's not a lot of teaching anymore from the pulpit about modesty. It really isn't. I mean, really, I bet you if you did a, uh, a, a they did one of these big data, if one of these uh, massive search engine cataloged all the sermons in America in the last 10 years, and you did a word search for modest, I bet it would be incredibly low 
in the number of times. It would be really, really low. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of biblical terms that just aren't being taught anymore, but God still wants women to be modest, pure, that there's a sacredness to uh, how God has created. I have three daughters, so this means a lot to me, right? Hopefully you, those of you that have daughters, but even if you don't have daughters, it should mean a lot to you whether you have sons or daughters. It's so opposite of today's sensual environment, isn't it? I mean, do, do you think that when you're walking through the newsstand uh, at, at Publix or Kroger and you see everything there, would modest be the first thing you would think of? Sacred? No. Pure? Absolutely not. We, we live in a society that's very permissive. There's, a, there's even a vulgar push, not just, not just kind of, oh, that's on the line, but beyond on the line, there's even a, a very vulgar push to kind of push the envelope to you normalize everything. What used to be this is now this, and now this, and it, so you, you kind of, that proverbial frog in the pot, just slowly turn up the changing sensual heat, if you will, in our country, not just here, but around the world. So, younger, older women are saying, hey, I know that the society, this is, this is an older woman talking to young women, I know society has convinced everyone this is normative, but Jesus would say otherwise. So if you need a backstop, just use Jesus. Say, if he were to come, would you wear the same thing around him? Hmm, well, that's a different story now, right? To think about it like that. Number five, if you're taking notes, homemakers. This is other, it's another word that's not real popular uh, in America today. Again, I didn't write the Bible. I'm just telling you what it says. You can take it up with the Lord someday. If you, I wouldn't, but you could. <laughs> I wouldn't advise that. But you could. I mean, hypoth- well, you couldn't even because you, when you get to heaven, you won't even have the option. <laughs> you would not be able to have an argument. So, so just drop it and just accept it. This is the best way to go on. But really, what a homemaker means. Um, it's making a house a home. It's that simple. It's making a house a home. Now, I think most of you ladies want to make your house a home. Good thing, because your husbands, you know, if they, it would just be nothing on the walls, and, you know, it would be really, really spartan conditions, and might even have, like, a New York Giants poster on the wall or something like that, you know. So, um, but... Making your home an oasis for the family to come home and be refreshed, it takes some work, doesn't it? It takes some diligence. Keeping the dishes clean. And, and, and this isn't necessarily that mom does all this, but, but they can be really good managers, right? I, my wife is a great manager. She's got a little uh, thing on her desk. She has her own desk. I have a desk. I have an office. She has her own desk. Hers, for the longest time, had it said, work with me, people, right on the desk right there. <laughs> Just said, work with me, people, because sometimes in the house... We're not all working with her, you know. Not, not just the kids, me too. I'm like, uh, I said I'd do that, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but, you know, it's funny. If, if you met someone and they said they're a home builder, you'd say, oh, that's, that's impressive. Oh, you're a home builder. Wow. How many homes you built? That's a, our company built a thousand last year. I'm a homemaker. Oh, that's worthless. What if your kids grow up? and impact millions of people. Not so worthless then, is it? 
What if your home is for hospitality? When you bring people, they feel so welcome that they're refreshed at your house and nowhere else did they feel that for months or, or a long time. We've had people come over our house and they said, we so needed this. Make your house welcoming to other people. The hospitality is involved. All these things. Don't look at it the way the world looks at it. Look at it the way God looks at it. And number six here, taking notes. Obedient uh, to their own husbands. This is another one that goes over really well. Um, uh, this is only a problematic word from God to us. This is only a problematic word from God to us if, one, you don't believe or trust God, believe in or trust God. Say, I don't believe what God is saying. I don't think I can trust him because this, this sentence here is really, really problematic for me. Or you have a husband that's really fleshly, really rebellious, perhaps unsaved and opposed to God. Then this, this is going to bother you too. Like for my wife, that, that sentence isn't going to be a big deal. And I'm not perfect. None of, none of you men are perfect. I get that. But, you know, once you actually have a relationship that's built on love, that's built on God as the foundation, Jesus is the court, chief cornerstone, then the things that come from God don't really scare you anymore. You kind of see that God's ways are best, and we need to kind of learn how they work. But people that don't believe God, and they see it from the world's perspective, automatically think the worst of something like this. Uh, the, the passage assumes, remember who the, Paul is writing to Titus, Titus is then writing to church leadership, and the assumption here is that people are walking with the Lord here. And so if your husband loves Jesus and you love Jesus, then you don't have to be afraid of being taken advantage of. You will have days that you both mess up, but you won't have to be afraid of taking advantage of. And so the obedience would be more of most of the time in our house, we, we discuss everything and at least half time, I go with her idea. That's just normal. But there may be something where God says, no, we really need, I really feel led. Now, we, we should go on this mission trip, or we should do this, or not. Okay, all right. If you're wrong, then it's on you, right? That kind of thing. That works. We don't have that dialogue. But it, you could have that, and it would, be, it would be, in part, that would be a true statement, right? It would ultimate, ultimately, if I had been praying, I'm hearing from the Lord but if I am, then I have a confidence. No, this is the way the Lord is leading me. And so that's the, the assumption here is both parties have a loving relationship with the Lord. And if that's the case, then this really works. If you were number two in a company and your boss had implicit trust, you know, David was at one time not the king. Jonathan had implicit trust in David, right? Does that make David a lesser person? Mm -mm. They were quite a team. Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, they make, you know, you, you see they make a team, so it, but there has to be the understanding that uh, there has to be a covering and say, all right, these final decisions need to go uh, this direction. Now, again, someone who is unsaved, if you have a husband that's abusive, hates God, this is going to be a real problem. As a matter of fact, the church should be there to help in those situations say, no, no, you, you need to get out of that situation. It's not even safe for you, right? You need to not be, you know, you're not supposed to, or if someone is asking you to sin, that's where church leadership, no, none of that. God never told you to do that. You need to obey the Lord in that situation. So we need to be uh, wise and available 
if women are in bad situations, you know, you, Miranda and Alan were here recently, and you know, Miranda was in that situation. Sometimes she didn't get the real, I don't think she got even the best counsel from the church sometimes. I don't think the church was even protective of her at times, and that's not, that's not good, and that's certainly not what uh, Paul is talking about here. He's talking about two uh, that have a right relationship, but still a growing relationship uh, with the Lord. Moving on, a word to young men. Let's look at the young men. Say, ladies are glad. Like, yes, move on to the men for a little bit here. You know, <laughs> enough of us. And by the way, all of these things in verse, at the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The more a woman is submissive to the role that God has given in her spirit. I'm not saying that every, things will be different in profiles. Your life will not look exactly, not, this is not some cookie cutter. Every woman looks exactly the same. But there will be a submissive spirit to Christ that shows up in how interacting with the kids, interacting with the spouse. And the world will see the difference. A lot of times they won't necessarily like it because they'll think, you need to be edgier, you need to be this, you need to be that. But, it'll, but the word of God won't be blasphemed. And Jesus someday will say to you, well done, good and faithful. Yeah. A word to young men. Let's move on to verse, uh, verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men. So the older men, they were mentioned back in the first couple of verses, chapter 2. The older men, middle-aged men, men that are more mature in the Lord, they're to be exhorting the younger men. First up, Paul said, for them to be sober-minded. Mature men are to encourage younger men to keep their minds spiritually healthy. Keep their minds spiritually healthy. Uh, the meaning of sober-minded, it's uh, a multifaceted disposition to walk in. So sober-minded uh, sober means a couple of things simultaneously, just like the word admonish. The phrase of the term means to be of a sound mind, to exercise self-control. I like this one, to moderately estimate oneself. Young men think a lot of themselves sometimes, right? These old guys don't know what they're talking about. There's a young guy walking in the room. I can bench press 280. This guy can't do that, you know, that kind of thing. So I bet he's dumber than me too, right? All of that. To moderately estimate oneself. And the last one, really good for young men, although it's older men too, but really it, there, is, there is something with seasoning that you win battles, you don't have to win as much anymore. Uh, to curb one's passions also means that. It doesn't mean one of them. It, it means all of them. You have the composite view here. Let me read it again one more time so you catch it all. You have, for these younger men, sound mind, exercise self-control, moderately estimate oneself, curb one's passions. These are all things that need to be taught, just like the young women need to be taught and discipled by the older women. Mature men are saying, you can do this. You can do this. You can stop thinking so highly of yourself. You can curb those passions with the help of Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes all of this possible in any of us. Amen? Amen. But certainly in the life of a, of a young man or a young woman or any person for that matter. Uh, but what here's the thing God tells us. What should be done must be done. And what can be done still has to be encouraged and exhorted to be done. That's a lot of duns there, I know. But in other words, if it has to be done, God says it has to be done. 
if it has to be done, how is it going to be done? Well, it needs to be taught, encouraged, and it can be done. God says, if I told you to do it, it can be done. Isn't that good to know? If God says, if I told you, it can be done. Well, I'm not sure if I can do it. If saint from 1,000 years can do it, we can do it. Not because we're better or able, but because we have the same Holy Spirit, because God changeth not. Same yesterday, today, and forever. The scriptures are replete with reminders that repeat again and again and again. Have you ever noticed that when you read the Bible? So I, I think I've read something like this before. Well, you probably have. The scriptures repeat a lot. Why? Because even with repetition, we can forget rather quickly things, can't we? Young men can forget a lot of things quickly. You know the verbiage that happens every time you board an airplane? Who's flown in the last, like, month? Anyone get them? You know, all of Israel teams should raise their hand. If you've got an airplane, you, you know when you get on the uh, airplane, the flight attendant or a video starts. It's usually the flight attendant, they get up, and they have a seatbelt in each part of their hands, right? right? You know how this goes. Or it's a video. About a third of the airlines now do a video, but a bunch of them still have a flight attendant who gets in the middle, one's up there, and they, do, they point, stuff like this, and they do all this stuff. Um, here's a portion of what you hear. You'll no doubt recognize these words. Take note of the closest emergency exits, they, uh, as they may be behind you. In the unlikely event, in the unlikely event of a loss of cabin pressure, panels above your seat will open, revealing oxygen masks. Reach up and pull a mask towards you. Place it over your nose and mouth and secure it. Now, they're doing all these hand motions with this, too. They actually hold one. They have a little yellow cuff there. They go like this. They do all this stuff. And secure it with an elastic band that may be adjusted to ensure a snug fit. The plastic bag will not fully inflate, although oxygen is flowing. You remember all this? Same talk track every time. It's, a, it's from the FAA. Everybody gives the same thing. Research that was conducted by New South Wales University tested passengers with a pre-flight safety video delivered by celebrities. That's always a bonus, right? Celebrities. You can't get enough of them, right? So now you get them to help with that. So one, they did it with a video with celebrities giving the same talk. They do the whole thing, same thing, but it's just a celebrity. Um, then they had a non-celebrity, but with some humor. So a non-celebrity, but it was kind of funny. Same, same thing. And then lastly, a non-celebrity and no humor. The most boring of them all, right? So non-celebrity, no humor. Um, shortly after being exposed to the briefing, individuals... Uh, recalled approximately 50% of the key safety messages from the briefing when it was given by a celebrity, about 50%. This is shortly after. 45% from the briefing containing some humor. And 32% from the one that um, had neither a celebrity or humor, just dull as could be, about 32%. This is shortly after. But two hours later, two hours later, post-exposure to the pre-flight safety briefings, uh, the recall decreased to 4% of the original levels, no matter who gave the briefing. <laughs> Two hours later, uh, there was a yellow cup. <laughs> there was, someone said something about an exit. I, uh, that's all I remember, right? You're like, I'm watching a movie here, I'm listening to music, I have no idea. And the, the gal was doing, it wasn't a gal, it was a man that was standing there, dude. You know, they, they, everything's wrong, down to 4%. Our minds can forget rather quickly, can't they? We, have, we, 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 I know people that are older say, man, I'm so forgetful. But really, everyone is. This wasn't age-dependent. This was anybody. 
It's why Hebrews, we talked about something about drifting, how quickly we can drift. In the minds of young men, really anybody can drift quickly from right-mindedness. And from a practical discipleship standpoint, young men need multiple voices and people in their lives. Young men don't need just one mentor in life. They need, a, they need multiple people. That's why it takes the whole church to be involved in each other's lives. It's not just the young men. It's women admonishing women. These are plural statements. These are not singular statements. These are plurality statements. They need multiple voices, multiple other men in their lives, reminding them, encouraging them, just as the young women need. Next, in verse 7, look at verse 7. All things showing yourself a pattern of good works and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. In teaching young men, you're to teach them all to be worthy examples. You don't want some to be examples and others not. You want everybody to be a worthy example. Translation, teaching and training men to be spiritual leaders. That's why we're uh, going through the, the Moody book on spiritual leadership starting uh, in our uh, Thursday night study. We want all of our men to become spiritual leaders. Not titles, although that may come or be uh, some role, but it's, it's lives that can be followed, spiritual lives that can be followed. Um, he goes on to say, a pattern of good works, and we understand that. Uh, what does that mean? Well, we, we have a calling to have lives of service. And as the word pattern is used here, and then works is in the plural, not a work, works, plural, multiple works in your lifetime. Works is in the plural. It's clarifying that there's a steady lending of your hand to service, steady lending of your hands to service, right? Every day you go to your job, you're doing various works, plural. You probably do a lot of things, not just one thing. You're lending your hand, and the same is in the body of Christ. We're not saved by our works. We understand that, or we should, but we're absolutely saved unto good works. We're not saved by works. None of your works could get you one second in heaven. By neither. But we are saved unto good works, works that Christ has as Paul wrote as well, has prepared for us. Even before the foundation, there are certain works we're prepared. We talked about Sunday. We have a mission. Each of us have a mission. We have the larger, greater commission mission, but we each have individual missions that are tailored for us, works that have been prepared for us to do. I don't do yours. You don't do mine, but together we do them, and we actually have the multi uh, multiplied effect of all of us doing the works that God's called us to do. That's why we talked about having our missions fulfilled. Now, all good works come from where? If they're really good works, they come from God. Every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect work, it comes down from God. But then it flows into us in the form of a, a task or a command, and then it flows out of our hearts as we're doing it in the work of the Holy Spirit. It just should, should flow out as a good... It should, if it, in other words, if it comes in as a good work, it should go out as a good work. And we tend to corrupt things because we have a sin nature. That's why we have to stay in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, the life of the Spirit. And this is, these are, again, the, the, the mature believers are teaching younger believers how to walk in the Spirit. If they didn't have the Holy Spirit, then they couldn't 
then this is pointless because they couldn't do it anyway. It'd be like telling uh, your ch child to fly. Well, the birds are doing it. They just move, move your arms like this, right? You can tell them all day long, unless God gives the power to fly, you're not flying. Well, spiritually speaking, he has given us that power, not to fly, but to walk in the spirit. Otherwise, these are pointless requests or, or teaching points on Paul's part. Now, there's some, there are some simple obedience, and there's some simple obedience required, uh, a pattern of good works. It's going to take some obedience to do works. It's also going to take some effort. So if you're told what to do, it's probably going to take some effort to do it. Works contains the word work, doesn't it? Take the S off. Works contains the word work. And that's a scary thing to young men sometimes, really young men, teenage men, really. Work. I was a master at figuring out ways not to get the grass cut. I could become a meteorologist. If I land, it's going to rain that day. I won't have to do it. You know, all that kind of stuff, you know. You have to learn to work. Sometimes we like to avoid work that conflicts with our, conflicts with our time, right? Um. I'll give you an example. Uh, being kind and friendly is a good work. Wouldn't you all agree? Being kind and friendly is a good work. God's well pleased if we're kind and friendly to people. That, that's a good work. Pleases God. But there's plenty of Christians, not, there's plenty of non-Christians that I think are pretty kind when I meet them. I meet lots of kind and friendly non-Christians. Often it's an attitude more than some great sacrifice. Although it could be. Be kind to your enemy can take a lot of sacrifice, but, but usually it's, it's an attitude, say, I'm going to follow and be Christ-like and be kind and friendly, and that's a good work in and of itself. Um, now, some people won't be kind and friendly. Some men, if you, if you grew up in a gang culture, that would look like weakness, right? So that fear and weakness says, no, no, I won't do that, and that's, that's, that's a bit of an extreme, but that certainly exists in quite a bit of it around the world. Um, but back to a works-based example requiring work, uh, friendliness is a work in of itself. So you could wave hi to your neighbor and mean it and smile and say, hope you have a great day. And then you see they have two flat tires and you were on your way to do something fun and the Holy Spirit says, you are the one I've called <laughs> to put your plans on hold today and go over there and help. But I just said something. I waved hi and, and have a great day and I meant it too. You can do this in the church, too. I shake every head. I jumped in the car and was at the restaurant before all of them. God says, there's a word work in that works. You like the part that comes easy, but not the part that takes the effort. And both are important. I mean, you still should be kind, but you also should lend a hand. And it's, gonna, it's not just once. It's a whole lifetime of this. Jesus, the, the whole parable he gave the Good Samaritan, right? This guy actually meant it to the point where I'll get off my animal and start helping and start and writing checks and the whole nine yards. He'd love to help the neighbor, but I'm just too busy, right? Then it's not a good work anymore. The friendliness kind of goes out the window. Um, next one is doctrine. Moving on. We've got to move quickly. And doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. And doctrine showing integrity, 
reverence and corruptibility. Um, doctrine is a holy respect of the Word of God and also a knowledge of how to use it. Holy respect of the Word of God, but also a knowledge of how to use the Word of God. It's not using uh, Scripture because he says doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. It's not using doctrine. It's not using uh, the Word of God to build some pseudo case or make an excuse. You'll hear people say, well, I've read it's judged not unless you be judged. Well, you might want to read the whole rest of the context. Spiritual man rightly judges all things, the scripture says. Now, it's a different passage, but again, the whole counsel of God helps, to, helps us to understand this. It's, uh, you're not con it's not a judgment of con condemnation. Only God can do that. But a, a right judgment of a situation, boy, you want your doctor to have good judgment, right? Tell so, doctor, you can't judge because you're not allowed to judge anything. Right? Well, then I'll just leave you alone, you, Right? And spiritually speaking, we, we've been given that same type of authority and insight from the Word of God. Not that we make it up, but we, we would use the Word of God correctly. It's impossible uh, to be sound in the Word without a love for the Word, by the way. You cannot be sound for the Word without a love for the Word. Um, it takes some study and effort in the Word. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means you have to hunger and thirst for the Word of God. We talked about this Sunday with living bread. The next one, he says, is uh, sound speech, which cannot be condemned, that one that has an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. Sound speech means truthful, healthy, wholesome. It really means whole, but where, where we would get the connotation of wholesome. Words that are wise, words that are edifying, words that are kind, words that are honest, words that are considerate, words that are respectful, measured, mature, encouraging, and timely, God-honoring. And that's how it's said, as well as what's said. How it's said is tone and inflection, right? If you say to someone, that's a great idea, it's totally different than, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Same words. This is great for married couples, by the way. They'll know which statement was which. That, that's a great idea. Oh, that's a great idea. Body language, all comes together, right? So what we say is important, has to be from the Word of God, but how we say it has to be sincere, has to be respectful, has to not words that cause friction, but words that actually bring harmony, peacemaking, and anything else, it, it, uh, the right thing said the wrong way is often just plain wrong, and it's always counterproductive. The right thing said the wrong way is often just plain wrong and always counterproductive. So as you mature, I, I love when I say, I don't love it, but I, I've learned, you ever watch people, we'll, we'll come, we're about to wrap up here in just a second, but you ever seen people that, they're not happy how something, was go, how, how something has gone, and they find the customer service number. So they call up customer service, and they are going to give it to them. And I'm, I'm just, I'll hear these conversations, I'm like, you aren't getting any of what you asked for. Matter of fact, you might have a bill twice as large when you're all done with it, the whole thing. But I have found, I mean, at last, when Alan Miranda came, we had something that they came in, their flight came in late, and they went, so it was, they missed 
getting a rental car because all the rental car desks were closed. And I said, I'm going to call Alamo tomorrow. But when you call and you're really nice and you compliment the people and say, thank you, I really appreciate you'll, you'll be amazed at what people will do for you. Like, now, Mr. White, can I drop? Literally, this is, we'll drop the rate to this. We'll take this off. We'll take this off. But, but if I would have called and said, I can't believe you closed the, you know, they, they arrived, they went to the gate, Alamo's closed. I've heard, you've heard people cursing them out and stuff. And the, the person on the other end is like, just like this saying, uh, we're not changing the rate at all. You know, that kind of thing. What? Let me talk to your superior, superior, and all this stuff. Christians ought not be that way. Don't, if you do that, don't tell anyone you want to go to Calvary Chapel, Richmond. <laughs> don't tell, tell them you go to, no, I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. All right, we need to, um, last two verses, I just want to make a couple of quick points and we'll, we'll wrap it up. Verse, nine, verse uh, he moves on to bond servants, verse 9 and 10. It's kind of complicated in our society to understand this, but exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleased in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. They may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in all things. I'm going to make this best I can in five minutes, and we'll, and we'll close it here. Uh, I'm referring to this last point as a word to the weary, and it's kind of, i do my best to do it quickly here. I'm referring to the last point of the word to the weary because I'm pretty sure most people now or in ancient times, don't or didn't dream as a child to grow up and be a bondservant, to be an indentured servant. Uh, even worse, to be a slave. Would you agree? I think most people say, that's my dream. I grew up in ancient Egypt, or I grew up in Mesopotamia, or I grew up in America. I want to be a bondservant. That's my career goal, or a slave. And a servanthood and slavery has been around a long time. Uh, this has been a sad reality in the history of the world. It's not God's heart. It's not God's plan any more than any other form of sin uh, or pain or bondage imposed on human beings. Never God said, this is what I want when he created the Garden of Eden. No. The Bible doesn't endorse slavery. It doesn't endorse uh, bond servants and all these things uh, in the sense of the way we see it in human history. It doesn't endorse human hierarchies, but it reflects that they've been there since the fall of man and the influence of Satan, who's always trying to get people to dominate other people. Always. Or put, I'm better than you are, or, you know, my skin is more important than your skin, or all those kind of things. And by the way, the Bible has been used at times erroneously to justify slavery. Let's be clear. It has been used erroneously. Even has been used to justify racism. Uh, but the Bible was also correctly used by Gustavo Vasa, who I've told you the book I've really enjoyed reading, John Newton, William Wilberforce, and many others in both England and America in the 30-year abolitionist movement. And by the way, everyone hated the abolitionist people, whether they were white or black or any other color. The vast majority of abolitionists, I don't know if you know this, were Christians. The vast majority were Christians. Uh, they held to the purity of Scripture, and they believed that slavery was a sin that needed to be repented of and ended. And many of their houses were burned down. They were beaten themselves. They, you know, they were hated in the north, and they were hated more by the south. And, the, and they'd send pamphlets. South, south, southern postmasters would burn them, throw them all into fires and stuff like that. The whole, they, it, they, they, for 30 years, they held the line and tried to preach against it in their churches and everything else. Uh, prior to the Civil War, the abolitionists were so hated that, again, it was a bad word to be called an abolitionist. 
Slavery would have never ended if it weren't for genuine Christians, no matter what state it never would have ended if there were genuine Christians play, praying and pleading for its ending and opposing other so-called Christians who supported it. We have the same problem today. We have churches that are actually abandoning the Bible, and I'm, telling, I'm calling those pastors out. Because they're, tell, they're telling people, they're Christians, I'm like, you, Satan loves to muddy the waters and say, they're all this. They're like, no, 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 no. They, they, ain't, they ain't part of the family. When we get to heaven, they will not be at the table. They'll be at a table, but it won't be the marriage, you know, it'll be somewhere else. So later, Martin Luther King and others would use the scriptures to readdress, and I say readdress because they actually picked up the baton of the same things that were said by the abolitionists to readdress the deeper roots, which is actually pride and sin and hatred was the underpinning of all forms of bondage. And then later, slavery was replaced with other forms of oppression and everything else, segregation, you see that this kind of stuff. Now, I mentioned all this, say, what has this got to do with this passage in a sense? Well, in a wider context, it doesn't. But in our understanding of our society and today's, the way things have kind of unfolded where people don't have a, a context of what the Bible says and what people who really followed the Scriptures did versus those who actually misused the Scripture. Paul was always battling people who misused the Scripture. That's whole, the whole chapter 1, the Judaizers, right? So this is something we need to understand. I mention all this because human slavery and bond servants, other forms of servanthood were common in the Roman Empire. Common. Paul couldn't get rid of it. It was everywhere he went. So he still had to win them to Christ, whether they were slaves or masters. Does that make sense? Or they were soldiers, or they were crucifying people, or they were the ones being crucified. Paul said, I've, I've got to reach them all. So it was common in the Roman Empire, though it was different in its origin and different in its reasoning than what we see took place in America in the 16th, or really the 1700s, 1800s. Um, in our past, and still remnants of it in our present in some ways, the counsel given to bondservant is a specific, it, it tells me that God sees the bondservants, right? God sees them. They were not invisible to God. They were nobodies, to the, but God saw them specifically. That's a good thing. And God says, I see you, and I'm sending apostles to you too, and the church is going to be your family as well, but you need to understand that until I come back, here's how I want you to operate. Because in Roman times, servants, of course, could suffer greatly, but at times, servants could rise to places of real strong trust where they actually had control of the whole house, the checkbook, where the master was all over the place and uh, you're in charge of everything. Joseph had this in Egypt. Remember, he became in charge of everything. Potiphar said, I, I, I don't know what's going on. He could have had his wife, and Potiphar wouldn't even known it, right? Do you see how that? So in ancient times, sometimes servants were so trustworthy, they basically they kind of ascended past the bondage in some sense, and yet they still didn't have real freedom, if that makes sense. And Paul said this was normal at that time. He wasn't endorsing it. He was just saying, we still want them to come to Christ. We still want their masters to come to Christ, all kinds of stuff. So as a servant, you'd likely still rather have your freedom, and you may be getting nowhere near what you're worth as a servant. Paul's acknowledging that may be, case, be the case. So you, out of your frustration and weariness, could rationalize skimming. Right? 
He's saying you might rationalize it, but God still tells you to resist that urge. Joseph could have skimmed, but he said, I will not sin against the Lord. Now, because he waited on God, God made him number two in the nation. And so Paul is saying, hold and trust the Lord. Don't try and get even, even though we can all understand why that would make sense. So this servanthood is, uh, the only way servanthood is really endorsed in the Bible is us to become servants of Jesus, us to be bond servants. Amen? We're all to call to be bond servants. Our mission is to reflect him, and uh, even it's in the tough places like Joseph, um, we can all in our weary situations, we'll wrap up with this, we can all in our weary situations when we're suffering. Again, forget bond servants for a second. In any kind of tough place in life, we can start to rationalize things, can't we? I deserve to give them a piece of my mind. And Jesus say, because it says right here, it says uh, not, um, uh, not, not um, answering back or pilfering, all of these things, again, he's saying that the more you trust the Lord and exhibit Christ, God can break through some really difficult situations in your life. And you might have a difficult boss. How are you going to deal with it? You can quit the job, but God may tell you not to quit. He might say, I want you to exhibit and shine as a light in that situation. We can compromise and say, well, this is going to make me feel better, and I can change the circumstances. Be careful. If God puts you in an exam, you're not allowed to cheat your way out of it. You get to retake it again and again until you pass it correctly. Amen? That's not always easy. And as I said, I mean, boy, when I read some of these stories and I was reading the life of Gustavo Vasa, I would have bailed on the Lord probably sooner than some of these other folks have. And I read the martyrs of the saints, stuff like that. And I, I read what they... But when God brings you to the other side, Paul said the sufferings of this life are not to be compared... We're not making light of it. We want to do everything we can to root those things out in this world. But on the other hand, Paul could not flip the Roman Empire. But he could turn it upside down for Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what he was saying. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We can stand on it. Even at times, we don't understand exactly when we first read it what it is you're doing. But Lord, the longer we walk with you, uh, we see that you can be trusted, and we can trust you to do these things, and it will bear fruit. And Lord, as we leave here tonight, and as the men gather to pray, we pray you just bless the rest of our evening. Uh, use us as your lights and witnesses tomorrow in the workplace and uh, on into the weekend. We love you, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.